Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I have a, a kind of a strange title here, and I think as I go through it, uh, you'll catch on. But I've entitled this Christianity as Salvation from Religion. And the idea is that in the Bible there is idolatrous religion. And I'm going to take idolatrous religion, though, as a huge, a lot, much larger category. And then there is faith revealed by Christ. And I believe there's an explanation for what we might call all forms of human religion. And our goal then as Christians is to keep these two things separate. I think Christianity is very distinct. Idolatry, in Paul's description, is simply a way of describing the problem of human desire. And this we'll read, if you, as I'm saying this, look up Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 8. And what he's saying in this verse, in these verses, is that there is this universal problem, the problem of desire, and he describes it in some detail, and it's this problem that Christ has come to resolve. Let me read then Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 8. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And then in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. If we compare this passage to other passages, you know, like in Ephesians, Paul is He's not saying this is just true of some people. He said, we all walked in this way. Uh, And in this, he's describing then the spirit of the age, this idolatrous religion, which was, I mean, really the only kind of religion other than Judaism that he knew of and that which existed alongside Judaism and Christianity. So one could say, if you fix the religion problem, you fix the human problem. But not because religion is separate from all these other issues, and that's clear in this verse, you know, that it is connected to passion, evil desire, greed. But precisely because religion or the problem pertains and the answer pertains to what is most basic about us. Religion, I believe, has to do with our basic identity. And what I'm saying is the religions as we have it, or human systems as we have them, get this basic identity wrong. In Genesis, it says that, you know, in the beginning, that man was created in the image of God. And the the word they're used to describe this is the word selim. He created them, by the way, it's a plurality, male and female, in his image and likeness. So Demuth, Selim. And Selim then will occur again and again in the Bible, but it occurs most often 
in the connection with idolatry. That is, the, the image has gone bad. We've got an image problem. And you can see this in the problem of idolatry. Uh, the word, by the way, just comes from a root that means to carve out or uh, to hew out an idol. It's also the same word that's used in Exodus 34 when it says it describes Moses hewing out you know, the stone, the, the commandments in the stone tablets. So I believe if we follow what happens to the image in idolatry, we can get an insight. I believe this is just an insight into the human predicament. And in idolatry, you think, you know, the function of the divine perspective. Think of Genesis. The, the man and the woman, you know, Paul says the two were one, but they were one in and through God. So actually God, God's perspective is what gave them their perspective. They understood they're children of God. They're created by God. That is precisely reversed and shattered in idolatry. The idol becomes the image, right? It's no longer that we are the bearers of the image, but the idol is the tzilam, the image. And the idea is that there is this disconnectedness from ourselves, but, but from God, and that we're no longer seeing ourselves through the eyes of God, but we're seeing the image through our own eyes. Uh, our own image, our own ego. And by the word, ego is just the Greek word for I, right? That when Paul says, it's no longer I that live, that I have been crucified with Christ, he's actually using the word ego. And it's that this I is now like an object, a thing, an idol, a tselem, separated from God, separated from us. So just as the idol is an object, our own eye, our own image of ourself, it's almost like we think of ourselves in a static object sort of way. And this is the, the it's in idolatry that human desire is pictured as just increasing. What is the basic, what is our basic desire? You know, what do you want? I think that human desire in some way longs to refine the self, longs to refine this object, which in fact was never possessed, an object that existed maybe only as a mirage. We might say it's the thing that has been lost is we have been lost, right? Our own image has been lost. This is what Paul describes in Romans. You know, that long passage in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Notice that both in Genesis and the fall, you know, John will describe this, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, but Eve sees the fruit. It always is connected to looking. Paul says, it, you know, it, we could say that the move is from listening to the word of God to a kind of seeing is believing, a spectral mode of thought. Paul describes this in uh, Romans chapter 7. 
I do what I do not want to do and what I want to do I don't do. There's a split in the I, in the ego and it is misdirected. It presumes that there is life in the law and the reality is that uh, it is a, an outworking of death. You know, Paul cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? And so in Paul's depiction, the split eye, I think, I think that's a picture of idolatry still. In other words, we all have the idolatrous problem. We all have the alienation problem illustrated in idolatry. And it may be the law that serves as the idol. It may be a literal object thing. It may be, you know, but in some way we're, a try, we're trying to achieve unity. We're trying to get over this agonistic struggle, this uh, thing that we're always fighting that Paul describes. And so in the realm of the self, you know, what? no matter our accomplishments, no matter what our life, the changes that we may go through in life, if we picture ourselves or we picture ultimate truth in terms of this static object like an, an idol, uh, there will be no growth, there will be no real change. Um, so the point here is that man is the originator of the gaze, of the originator of the idolatrous scene, the originator of religion, that in some way God or the gods or ultimate truth is just a projection of who we are. This is from Isaiah 44, verse 9 to 18. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it uh, for himself among the trees. He plants a tree, then it becomes something for a man to burn. He takes one of them and he warms himself. He makes himself a little lunch over the fire. And with the other half he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Do you get the image? It's just a piece of wood. He, you know, he makes the image, he turns away, cooks his lunch, and he turns, oh, there's God. And he bows down to the thing that he has made. That the God that he worships is his own image, his own creation. The conclusion, they do not know, nor do they understand. He has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see. You're blinded. And cannot see their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. That is in some way, we that with this idolatrous image, <coughs> there is then an incapacity to see reality. Our gaze is blocked. And so the idolatrous image reverses the original image. 
And in this reversal and alienation, I believe that we get the components of the, the, the image as divine perspective. In other words, how, what happens when the prophets enter this scene? You know, and it's often pictured, when the prophets come on the scene, it's pictured as someone entering a bedroom in the midst of a lewd act. It's pictured as an adulterous situation in which the Israelites are caught out in, in a kind of, they're like they're having an affair. Uh, there is a split between the male and the female. Think of the original image, you know, the two shall become one, right? But in idolatry, the image of the idol is very often pictured as male. The idolaters are pictured as adulteresses, as female, and the two can never be brought back together. And so this is typical. Some of this, I'm, I, I hesitate to read on a Sunday morning. It's right out of the Bible. But it, it, uh, in Ezekiel, she lusted after their paramours whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. What's being described is not an erotic relationship, it's an impossible relationship. And in this impossible relationship in which the one, you know, the adulteress, the idolater, desires the idol, I believe this is just the condition of human desire, it's pictured as a kind of exponential desire that results in child sacrifice right that here is the reason there is violence here is the reason uh, that uh, in some way there is aggression who inflames yourself this is uh, from Isaiah 57 who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags among the st smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I re relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. The image of sexual immorality is simply a metaphor for the human desire that has gotten out of control, idolatrous desire, child sacrifice. You know, that's the, the verse we read in Colossians. Think of Romans chapter 7. I did not know what it was to covet. And then covetousness. Paul is revealing to us, I think, what the Old Testament is describing as the primary human problem. We have a desire problem, and this desire is misdirected. Let me read one more verse. This is from Ezekiel. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols, and even caused their sons, whom they bore to me, to pass through the fire to them as food. They're sacrificing their children to feed the gods. Right? Here is this complete you know, exponential desire 
in which they literally are giving, they're sacrificing their own children. I don't know, uh, I think, Dale, you get the, uh, the archaeology magazine. They've just discovered the, an Aztec city. Did you see this in the news where the heads are stacked up? The, they uh, were sacrificing you know, hundreds and hundreds of people on a daily basis just so the sun god would keep rising and setting every day. Human sacrifice, we now recognize, is nearly universal. Uh, in Japan, you know, that even the Buddhism and the Shintoism, uh, they're, you know, they don't, obviously they're not still doing it, but there is then evidence that this religion goes back to a kind of human sacrifice. But that's true all over the world. That this is not some strange thing that happened among these unique people, but it just seemed to be universal. The ego or idol, uh, you know, functions in some way uh, as an attempt to gain unity, to overcome alienation. Uh, and there is this aggressivity uh, towards the self, the splitting of the self. There is a tension, there is a desire uh, that shackles us to the pursuit of an illusory unity which is always luring us out. Now I'm saying all this, this may sound kind of strange to you, but today in the United States there's a, 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 a whole movement toward meditation and enlightenment. Let me, t- let me give you the keys to meditation. And I'm, I'm, let me just say it. I'm not saying this is all bad. I'm just saying this sounds a little bit like what I just described to you. Step one, and I'm quoting a guy here. Uh, this is the leading expert. He's actually doing uh, brain research of people doing meditation. You must genuinely des- desire enlightenment. Desire is the key. You have to desire this thing with all of your heart. Beliefs are principles that you are formed with in the past, and enlightenment is getting beyond belief. I'm just quoting. What he's saying is the experience trumps belief. Experience trumps understanding. There is this kind of ecstatic experience. I'm skipping a couple here, but the next thing he says... You'll need to engage in an intense ritual, chanting, rapid movements of head, body, arms, that will interrupt old habits and everyday consciousness. Now I'm not saying there is something inherently wrong with meditation, but what he's describing is to displace belief, is to displace understanding. The fourth thing he says, you must completely surrender and immerse yourself in the ritual for 10 to 50 minutes a day. Keep going until you feel a distinct change in your ordinary consciousness and you will achieve enlightenment. And enlightenment is the apex. Enlightenment is the goal. So desire, you know, engage, surrender, uh, I don't know, maybe there, I'm sure there are uh, benefits to meditation. 
But the sword of enlightenment that uh, Andrew Newberg is the guy's name is describing as most helpful, I'm afraid reduplicates the sort of surrender of thought to desire that is described in idolatry. There is a presumption that experience per se gives us the truth. Have this ecstatic experience. Now this is not just Newberg, this is if you go to the University of Missouri, but also if you go to the little Christian college down the road, they're going to teach the same thing about religion. And what I'm saying now, I think this is exactly wrong, and that is that in religion, there is a kind of sui generis experience, that there is this, that there is their own, it, it is its own cause and belongs to its own unique category. That religion is above history and time and understanding and belief. That religion then in some way is transcendent of all other, you know, politics, culture. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? How did Jesus come to us? Did he come to us in that sort of experience or did he become a man? Did he enter history? Did he come to a particular time and place? Speak a particular language? And do we come to Christ primarily through an experience or do we come to him through the Gospels? Through re- and I, I, That's a rhetorical question. In other words, uh, religious traditions in this, and this is a quote, are more or less true to the extent that they help human beings to overcome self-centeredness, to be open to love to others. And so the major traditions are more or less equally true. Is that right? Is that correct? That it really doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters what experience you have. If you feel love and compassion towards all people, isn't that the primary goal? I'm being the devil here. I hope you recognize. No, I I think that love and compassion take on a particular meaning in Christ. Within a Christian frame, there are those who say, oh, well, there's anonymous Christians. There's people who don't know they're Christians. They live out the Christian life. You know, they're good people. They, um, They have goodwill. They can attain salvation through their own religious tradition. And so in this understanding of religion, of experience, the religion never actually gets at what is attained. You know, in a sense, this is what I understand idolatry to be. Do the idolaters actually worship the image? Sometimes they do, but usually the image represents something they cannot attain. A good Brahmin, you know, Hindu, he's not worshiping an image. The image is representative of something that is beyond attainment. In Japan, I know that's the case with the Buddhist idols. There's idols everywhere. But the idols are not necessarily the direct object of veneration, but the thing that is represented, you know, some uh, invisible. In Shintoism, it is completely invisible. I believe this sui generis notion of religion is not unrelated to the sui generis notion of Christianity. 
that the church somehow exists apart from society and culture and that culture has its own innate essence. I believe this is exactly wrong. Can any religion truly be abstracted from politics, economics? Think Hinduism. Think the caste system. Think Buddhism. Uh, you know, it, it also, by the way, is attached to a particular casteism. Uh, biblical idolatry. You know, as we go through and read the about idolatry in the Old Testament, they do not distinguish the names of the gods from the names of the country. They identify the Egyptians by the names of their gods, and that's true right on a cross. I think that culture and religion then are fused. I don't think that's a bad thing. That's just the fact. And that in the church then, we are creating an alternative culture, an alternative kingdom, an alternative belief system. Christianity is not abstracted from history and culture. In Christian terms, uh, salvation is not just any experience of success, of religious attainment, It means we share in the liberation and healing associated with the rule of God, the reign of Christ, as we talked about in the Lord's Prayer. Salvation is the success that comes from the particulars of belief in Jesus. And taking up your cross may not seem all that successful in light of the systems of valuation that this world holds to. The practices and convictions of Christ's rule to outsiders, it may seem more like failure. Christian practices, you know, taking up the cross, living your life in the presence of Jesus. So to talk of salvation of non-Christians, of anonymous Christians, apart from taking up the cross, apart from living in Christ's presence, apart from acknowledging Christ's divinity, apart from the communion of the saints, apart from discipleship, is not to give salvation a wider meaning. I believe it is to empty salvation of any meaning whatsoever. The mission of the church is not about a vague need for all people to be better but to be the glad recipients of the good news of Christ Jesus, Acts chapter 17. It is to become a member of a community of persons living out their lives under the reign of Christ. So the very meaning of the word salvation in Christian use turns upon the shared life and practices Christians take up, that we take up when we come to Christ. And we could go through the vocabulary, you know, judgment, condemnation, damnation. The meaning and application of of these terms is only understood in relationship to this community of practice. And they really have no clear bounds. Even those who stand in risk of hell in the New Testament, they're not some unknown pagans. They're not people in distant countries. But they're nominally God's own people. They're the people within the hearing of Jesus' gospel. Love is one of the favorite terms in this new religion movement. You know, the meditation, enlightenment. 
But this idea, far from describing in the New Testament a universally understood experience, agape love takes on a very precise meaning in the ministry of Jesus. Certainly it's a feeling, it's an experience, but it's also the willingness to lay down one's life for the other. It's willingness to stand with the oppressed, to sacrifice one's own well-being. All of this is attached, you know, to Jesus' teaching on agape. It describes a peculiar faith commitment and a peculiar people. We are peculiar people or we are to be peculiar. So the key problem, I believe, you know, this this whole new area of study is called neurotheology. And it's shared with uh, various religious studies. In Japan, we have a whole area, the Kyoto School of Religion, in which they practice Zen Buddhism. And there's a whole group of people who have obtained Zen enlightenment. But of course, these are precisely the people during World War II who were promoting fascism and militarism. Enlightenment does not equal goodness. Enlightenment does not equal a true ethical understanding. Same thing could be said, you know, who was the premier thinker in Nazi Germany? It was Martin Heidegger who claimed to have achieved a kind of philosophical enlightenment. Can you be a good Nazi and be enlightened? Apparently so. He promoted anti-Semitism. He encouraged the Aryan students to beat up the Jewish students. He had his own professor who was a Jew, his own mentor, fired. He thought Adolf Hitler was like the Messiah. The point being that enlightenment as an end in itself is a poor sort of understanding. The focus of the Kyoto School, the focus of Heidegger, the focus of neurotheology, the focus on a kind of vague religious sentimentality, on experience, mood, oneness, enlightenment, to the near exclusion of the details of belief, I believe is inherently problematic because it so much identifies or resembles idolatry. Historically, this focus has created passivity, not just passivity in the face of evil, I believe it has been complicit in promoting evil. The conclusion is that Paul has a shift from a visual identity, a visual to an auditory. In Romans 8, the image of Christ and the law of Christ displace the false imagination, the false identity, the false word. This new worldview is not characterized by desire. Desire does not appear in Romans chapter 8 in the Greek. This desire that's grounded in alienation, impossibility of fulfillment. Rather, you know what replaces desire? Hope. The hope that we have in Christ is inclusive of the will, the imagination, reason, and it's no longer pitted against the law 
You know, it's no longer me, you know, over and against, but there is the realization of a unity. This is my concluding statement here. The church precedes the world epistemologically or in regard to knowledge. How do we know what's true? Through experience or through Christ in the church? I believe it's through Christ in the church. For Christians, we believe that we know more fully the way things are from faith in Christ, more so than from any other source. Accordingly, the meaning and validity and limits of concepts like enlightenment, experience, nature, even science, cannot be allowed to be self-justifying ends in themselves. They must be governed by the confession of the Lordship of Christ Jesus. Let's sing Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.